Good morning, church. So good to be with you virtually again today. God bless you. God bless you as you continue to worship and praise him. Today, we're going to be making our way into starting to talk about core convictions. This is the first one, biblical worship. You've been worshiping God in your time together today. We're going to be talking a bit about biblical worship in our time together. And the way that we're going to do that is to turn to God's word and to see how it is that he directs us in this sort of way. And so I want to encourage you to take a look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. As we, continue, as we consider for a while what Isaiah 6 might tell us about what worship should be like, what worship should look like, what worship is. So, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And let's remember as we hear this, that this is God's word. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in our time together now, as we consider your words this morning, we pray that you would move us to be faithful, biblical worshipers. We pray that in our time together today that we would see your glory and marvel at it. That we would recognize our sinfulness and your atonement for it. And we'd praise you for it. And we pray that we would desire to rise up ourselves and say, hey, here I am, Lord. Send me. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as I mentioned just before reading the text today, we make our way from talking about how Jesus is at the core of everything, then working through mission and vision to moving to some core convictions, some core values. Now, those Six core convictions are this, biblical worship, outreach, discipleship, fellowship, being reformed, and stewardship. Or as, uh, as we like to describe them, biblical worship, open arms to the world, teaching and training, life together, gracious reformed living, everything belongs to God. And so this, this is the first biblical worship. This forms the core of our identity. We are a worshiping 
people. And we have the chance this morning to spend a little bit of time in God's word and to see how it is that it directs our worship. And so having heard Isaiah chapter 6, let me tell you this. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the passage. The date that this passage uh, takes us to, we can get pretty close, is in the, the year that King Uzziah died. We know that King Uzziah died in approximately 740 B.C. And so for you who know your Assyrian history very much, this was the time when the Assyrian emperor Tiglath-Pileser III had established himself as a military presence that was to be feared. The Assyrian Empire was just starting to get its sea legs. It was about to become voracious, the Assyrian Empire. This is 18 years before Israel, just to the north of Judah, would fall to Assyria. Assyria's power would continue to grow. They would take over Israel itself, the northern kingdom. And Uzziah had been a strong king who had protected Judah from Assyria, but this strong king of Judah was now dead. Uzziah had also been king for 52 years when he died. And he had been a generally good king with um, some glaring mistakes that had left him with leprosy at the end of his life. But he was nonetheless a good king. He's remembered as a good king of Israel, and that's why he, that's why he reigned for 52 years. Most of the land would have lived their entire life with Uzziah as king. And so this was a time of incredible instability. The year that King Uzziah died, a, a vicious enemy is growing threatening the people of Judah, a good and stable king who had ruled for as long as they or anybody else could have remembered had just died. And the kingdom was experiencing transition. And in the midst of all of that, Isaiah is taken up to the throne room of the eternal king. The one who reigns not just for, not just for 52 years, but reigns for all eternity. And this is really important. There are times of uncertainty in our lives. There are going to be times of great difficulty. There are times of instability and insecurity. We are living through such a time right now. I've been talking to my grandfather a lot over the course of the last couple of weeks, and one of the things that he has said is, you know, Derek, I'm 93 years old. I've never in my life experienced something like we're experiencing right now. A virus that's keeping us in our homes, that's keeping us away from other people. I've never in my life experienced a global pandemic, but I'm experiencing it right now. This is a time of, uh, of a lot of instability, a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty in the economy. There's uncertainty in employment. There's instability in the markets. There's instability politically. There are protests and riots across the country, and people are uncertain about all of this. There are varying global responses. Everyone is feeling their way around in the dark. We do not know what's going to come next. 2020 has had so many challenging aspects to it that at this point, very little would surprise me if it showed up next. We're in a time of instability and uncertainty. We just are. And so honestly, as we read Isaiah chapter 6, we're reading it in some of the same way as the people of Israel were reading it. Theirs is probably more uncertain than our time is right now, but, but we have some understanding of what it's like in this time. If you are uncertain, if you are afraid, you need to know who sits on the heavenly throne. Nothing is going to remove God from his throne, not Tiglath-Pileser III, not COVID-19. 
God sits there on the throne and he will continue and from there he will reign and rule forever and ever and ever and no one will be able to remove him from his throne for his greatness and might transcends all else. And I mean, that's really clear, Isaiah chapter 6. And so it leads us into the meat of the sermon. We're going to take a look at the interaction that takes place between God and Isaiah in these four points. We're going to talk about God's holiness, about Isaiah's confession, about God's purification, and about Isaiah's task. Let's start with God's holiness. This is the first part of the passage because this scene is astounding. This is one of those take-off-your-sandals moments in the Bible because you feel like you're on holy ground when you read this section of Scripture. This is the moment where we meet God along with Isaiah in the throne room of God. Consider the scene. Verse 4 tells us that the voice of the angels is so mighty because as they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the foundations of the thresholds shook. That's what the scriptures say here. These are some mighty angels. They are mighty powerful. Could you imagine how powerful somebody would need to be to sing and then to just shake the whole foundation of this building right here? That would be a mighty person. It's even more so if such a person is singing in the throne room of God and the foundations of that building are shaking. These are powerful beings. Angels are not simply cherubs that shoot like, uh, you know, do-nothing arrows at people to make them fall in love. They're not cherubs that float on clouds dreamily looking at each other. These are mighty warrior beings that when they lift up their voice, a, a very room would shake. And yet, these glorious beings veil their own faces in the presence of someone whose glory far excels their own. Because God is God. Now you might hear that and you think, well, that's not much of a take home. Are you going to go on and just say, yeah, and Isaiah is Isaiah, and Paul is Paul, and Derek is Derek. Is that all you're going to say? I mean, how, how is it that that holds weight? God is God. But it's, you know, finally speaking, kind of the only thing that we can really say. Any other descriptor of God falls short. God is powerful more than we could imagine. God is mighty more than we could imagine. God is holy more than we could imagine. God is, the final examination, God. God stands apart and distinct and different. God is God. He is greater than we could possibly imagine. He is astounding, great, beyond measure or compare. God is God and there is no one else. He is worshipped here, not because of anything that he has done, but because of who he is. He's holy. And he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Now why do the angels repeat that phrase three times? Holy, holy, holy. This is not vain repetition. For the Hebrews, God's holiness was a distinguishing factor of who he is. Beginning with Exodus 6, verse 3, and continuing on, the word holy is given special prominence in describing Israel's God. And Israel, when it would be speaking poetically, if something was repeated, that was to give that thing emphasis. We can pick that up in the way that Jesus does his ministry, right? If you're reading through the New Testament, you're reading some of the gospel accounts, you can see that Jesus begins a lot of his discourses by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, or some translations would say, amen, amen, I say to you. 
And this repetition of that word, truly, truly, I say to you, this is to emphasize that what it is that he's about to say is of incredible importance. This doubling of the word increases emphasis, and it makes the statement emphatic. The Psalms do that too. Let me read to you from Psalm 130. This psalm is a psalm that expresses longing before God. I'm going to read just a few verses. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. You see what the repetition does in that psalm? Do you see how the repetition of the comment about waiting for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning deepens the emphasis, the emphasis and the passion of the psalmist? Psalm 130 is passionate. And the repetition of the phrase indicates the passion and the emphasis of the psalm. And the angels cry to God, holy, holy, holy. God is not simply holy. The angels don't simply repeat it to make it emphatic and emphasize. They repeat it three times so that there is no doubt that this is a holiness unlike any other. This is a holiness that's beyond us. It's different from our holiness. God is holy in a way that's different than you or I can be holy. Let me quote A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, A new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth to flow in and heal our great sickness. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree that we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. We may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness, we cannot even imagine. And the holiness of God is what leads to Isaiah's confession because the holiness changes Isaiah. What's Isaiah's response to seeing God's holiness? He knows the command given in Leviticus 20, verses 26, which says, Be holy as I am holy. Isaiah realizes that he is not holy, and so he cries out, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And so, standing in the presence of the Lord, of the King, of God, Isaiah recognizes really truly for the first time in his life that God is holy and that he is sinful. Isaiah realizes really truly for the first time in his life the depth of his own sin and wickedness. He realizes really truly for the first time in his life how sinful those are that he lives around. He recognizes that he has been comparing himself to his friends and his neighbors in terms of holiness and righteousness and that when he starts to compare himself to God, he does not measure up nor does anybody else, but they are all a part of the unclean lip people. I think that we can fall into this pattern where we're like, you know what, I think I'm okay. I mean, I'm better than the people I read about in the newspaper. 
I've got this holiness thing down better than my neighbor does. You should see, you should see the way that he talks to his wife. I would never do that. You should see the way that she talks to her kids. I would never do that. You should see the way that he spends money. I would never, never act like that. <laughs> you know, the, the measuring stick isn't other people for us. It's God. And so if any of us finds ourselves in the throne room of God and looks up and sees that these mighty angels, these threshold-shaking angels, that they need to veil their face because of the glory of God, we're going to recognize, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Me, that neighbor, the people I read about in the newspaper, we're all, we're all filled with unholiness and unrighteousness. It's God who's holy. We're not. When you are in the presence of God, you realize that you are not holy as God is holy. And so confession of sins is what naturally follows. This is why we confess our sins in the course of worship services, because when we come into worship, when we sing praises to God, when we hear God speak, you know, grace and mercy and peace to you, when we find ourselves in the presence of God as the people of God, we realize that he is holy and that we are not holy, that we're not God. Confessing sin, therefore, in a worship service reminds us in a public way that God alone is God. And when we come into his presence, we see that. We know that. And so we acknowledge together, whenever we have times of confession, you alone are God, you alone are holy, we are not. We need to be saved from our sins. But notice that's not, what, that's not all that happens in the throne room of God for Isaiah. After God uh, is, has taken Isaiah up in his presence, after Isaiah has seen God, after Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, what does God do? God purifies the sin of Isaiah. God's response to the sinfulness of Isaiah is not to destroy him. It's not to send him away. It's to provide purification. God sends one of his angelic messengers to him with a coal that was taken with tongs from the altar, a burning ember. Isaiah's lips are touched with that burning ember. And he's assured that his sin is taken away. God is so quick to forgive sin when we confess sin. It's amazing, really. God is so quick to forgive. All Isaiah had done is confess his sin. God, I'm a sinner. God says, yeah, I, I'm taking that away. This is why in the course of a worship service, whenever we have a time of confession, we're also always reminded what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. Every time that we come together as God's people and we approach the throne room of God with a confessional prayer, we approach God and we say, Lord, I am a sinner. We need to hear words of forgiveness. It's what God does to Isaiah. We need to be reminded of this reality. Yes, yes, my child, you are not holy as I am. So let me give to you the righteousness of Jesus.
Do you know that when Jesus died for you, he took away all of your sin? Do you know that when Jesus rose for you, he gave you all of his righteousness? Do you know that if you now were taken, belonging to the Lord Jesus, to be in the presence of God, that you would stand there in the robes of righteousness of the Son, Christ Jesus? Do you know that when the Father looks at you, if you're in Jesus, if you trust Jesus as as your friend and Savior and Lord and God, when, when the Father looks at you, he sees you as if you had been as perfectly righteous as Jesus was in your place. As if you had never sinned or been a sinner. Wow. And so this is why confession in our, in our church services is always accompanied by this assurance. Jesus saves. Jesus forgives. Every time that we confess our sin, God is quick to forgive. This is why confession never stands alone. We don't just confess sin and leave it there. We're reminded of the biblical truth that Jesus has made an end to all our sin. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And after God provides purification, Isaiah is given a task. After this takes place, after Isaiah confesses his sin, after he is purified from sin, then God speaks. God speaks. Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord, and he asks who the Lord is going to send. Do you notice that after purifying Isaiah, he doesn't need to force him or demand that he go out and tell people about the Lord After God has purified the sin of Isaiah, after God has spoken, he doesn't need to say, now, Isaiah, you've got to do this. I'm going to force you to do it. No, 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 no. God simply says, all right, who is going to go? And who's going to go with an incredibly difficult task? Isaiah chapter 6, the rest of it tells about how difficult that task was going to be. God says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Wow. That is a hard task that God has given to Isaiah, and he does not need to force him to carry it. God simply asks, all right, who is going to go? And at the voice of God, Isaiah raises his hand and is like, I'm here, God. You can send me on this task. When we hear God's voice, when we know of God's purification, then we are those people that are willing to raise our hands and be like, put me in. I'm going. You need somebody? You know what? I'll be your huckleberry. Let me, Lord... Give me this task. Send me, God. Let me be a worshiper of you while I'm in church and then also while I'm at work and also while I'm in school and also while I'm out there with my friends. Send me with a task. You've purified me. You've spoken. All right, I'm willing to do it. Count me in. 
all of this speaks to why it is that, that when we come before God, you know, we, we sing about his glory and his majesty and his greatness and his goodness. It's why we confess that we are sinners. It's why we hear words of assurance. It's why we make sure that there is a sermon so that God's voice is heard in the scripture as it's read. And if it's preached faithfully, we hear it as it's preached faithfully. And it's why we conclude with a song that, that motivates us to go because we want to be those, yeah, that's me. God, you've forgiven me. Let me live for you. In talking about worship, a lot of times our tendency is to speak about a style of worship. And you've probably noticed at this point, I've talked nothing about style. I mean, I have no idea what kind of style of music the angels were using as they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. For all I know, it was techno, right? or something that's not even been invented yet. I, there's nothing that tells us about the style that the angels are using. And so I've intentionally avoided style. There have been so many fights that have torn up churches that have been based in, in worship style. And I don't want to have those. And I don't want that visited here on Christ Community Church. I don't want you to battle or fight about what kind of style of worship you should have. Here is what I want to submit to you, that biblical worship, biblical worship is about realizing how great God is about hearing his voice. If in the course of the worship service you've experienced how great God is and, and you've confessed your sin to him and you've heard about the work of Jesus that forgives you from all of your sins, you've heard the gospel played out in the course of the worship service. If you've heard God speak, then you've had a biblical worship service. And it doesn't matter what style it is what place, what location that is. Right now, as we're meeting today on the Lord's Day, there have been churches all across the globe who have been meeting with a wide variety of different worship styles from the hushed whispers spoken in the underground church to the rhythms that characterize some of the worship services all throughout the wonderful continent of Africa, to the chants that have filled some European cathedrals, to the guitars that have been used across America. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what style it is. Is God glorified and honored and exalted? Do we realize how great he is? Do we recognize our need for him? And do we hear his voice? This is what biblical worship is. Don't fall into the trap about arguing over style. Realize what a joy it is to be in God's presence. And knowing what Isaiah 6 says about worship and, and knowing the terror, the godly, holy terror that Isaiah experiences as he falls on his face, let these words strike you with a unique beauty. This is the end of the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25 to him who's able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. You see, because of Jesus, you are now brought into the presence of God and you don't need to be afraid. 
You're there without fault. You're there without blemish. You're there to glory in praising God. And so what characterizes us as we are worshiping God together and as we are worshiping Him as we read His Word, what characterizes us should be praise. So let's praise Him together. Let's praise Him now as we conclude and let's continue on praising our glorious God for He alone is holy and He alone saves and He alone is worthy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are worthy. We pray that we would realize your greatness today. We pray that we would realize our sinfulness and that you alone purify from sin. We pray that we would hear your voice and heed it and that you'd send us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.